Stanford University. We asked students who wanted to go to send us a little mini Vita. What courses have you taken? What are you interested in? Why do you want to go? And we'd weed out the ones to make sure that as they were representatives, they had at least had the background so they could participate. We thought, what, 10, 15? We had 65 people. Absolutely every one of them had had multiple courses in environmental science or policy or engineering uh, and had done stuff. And I don't think I can ever remember not rejecting anybody. So I said, well, I don't know how we're going to do a priority on this because they're not going to let us apply for all of them. Well, it turned out they did. So those who really decided to go applied. And in the end, 37 went. Now, I began to worry right away, how big is this building? What happens if every other institution does this? What's going to be our scarcity uh, fallback plan? But that's the UN Frameworks problem. That wasn't our problem. So we did it. Then Terry and I, you know, in the spirit of our discussion with Jeff, uh, basically said, well, let's do the class. So we did the class thinking, again, you know, 10, 15 people would show up, no notice. Just, uh, you know, asked uh, Earth Systems to post it. And before we knew what happened, we ended up with 50. And I don't remember what the final number was, 40-something. So we divided them up into all the main players, China, India, US, you know, NGOs, small island states, indigenous, uh, business community, OPEC. And they fought it out. And they did not reach an agreement. But they had some agreement on, uh, on, um, uh, on intellectual property. They had some agreements on deforestation programs uh, and some compromise. It was almost identical to what in the end happened. So these guys are all trained. Now, the other thing that we insisted on is nobody is going there to be an accidental tourist. If you're going, then you have got to be affiliated with some group, an NGO, a startup business, a government. And we, almost everybody got placed. And there are several in the room. Maybe I'll ask a few of them to comment. And if I get through this quickly. So, so people had like mini interns. So therefore, they not only were going to the show and the 10 side events all around town, but they also had some responsibility with some groups so they could get to know people better. And that was all part of the deal. They found their own networks. They found their way into people's houses to be able to stay cheaply. It was very, very impressive uh, what they were able to do. Uh, we also had to have very early morning meetings because it was absolutely true. In the end, about 45,000 people signed up. The fire marshal said you shut it off at 15,000. So our meetings were before 8 in the morning so we could make certain everybody was in. And once you were in the Bella Center, the building, you just couldn't go out because if you went out, you probably wouldn't get back in because they were actually scanning badges. And when they hit 15,000, they shut it off and let you in until other people went out the other way. Not well managed. And uh, there's some other stories I'll leave for Kareem on that. Uh, anyhow, so that's basically it. So today's talk is on the COP15 in Copenhagen with the Stanford connection. But I really should call it the Woodstock of climate change policy. Because with 45,000 people, I don't know how many thousands of media, uh, it was really a happening. Unfortunately, like Woodstock, for those of you who may remember, it ended up in a muddy muck and mire in the heavy rain. And this ended up in the political muck and mire, where we still are. But uh, we'll come to that. All right. So this was a cartoon that I saw that came out right around then. And um, 
there's good old diplomacy, and this was meant to represent the fact that it's not easy to overpower the existing status quo, the trillion-dollar industries committed to it, and the incredible lobbying power that they have everywhere around the world. So the question is, could Copenhagen crack through that? It's the 15th meeting, and we had had some progress, uh, but it was going up and down. Well, so we're out there in the, um, in the harbor, and I'm sorry to say there's a big coal-burning power plant right in the middle of Copenhagen, but notice what it's surrounded by. <laughs> so they are, in fact, and that's if you turn around, they really are trying to walk the walk. Yes, they have coal, but they've really been putting in an effort. So that was one of the reasons, I think, why they were a venue for this. Of course, somebody has to turn the lights on, like here inside, uh, inside of the Tivoli Gardens, and uh, it's mixed power, and their footprint is better than most countries, uh, and they're trying to do more. Uh, anyhow, all over you, this I took as we got off the airplane, everywhere. This meeting took over this city. So Hopenhagen, by the way, about uh, halfway through, uh, people started changing the sign to Nopenhagen, and afterward it was getting called Dopenhagen. But uh, anyhow, and these posters were everywhere. So this Kevin Rudd, current prime minister of Australia, they had one for pretty much all the world leaders. And this is a, you know, a, a 2020 apology for failing here, which was pretty prognostic. Uh, and then there were all these kind. This is also a subway sign. Uh, and there's our favorite symbol, the polar bear. And this was some sculpture out there. This is called the Tree Hugger Project. And the whole, there was lots of art, you know, there was, you really could not walk anywhere without a feeling that you were in this Woodstockian event, a little on the chilly side, uh, and slightly different. So this is the, um, the subway, and somewhere just over there on the left is there. You can see the dome is where the thing was. So you get out of the train, and immediately you get confronted with various protesters, with various ads, with all different kinds of stuff. And um, then you go inside. Now, this is the line on Saturday before the thing started on Monday. By Sunday, the line was down the block, and by Monday, people were standing outside in the zero degree Celsius weather for four hours trying to get in. It was really a serious management problem. Police were everywhere because they knew that you're not gonna have 45,000 members of civil society without having some of them Trotskyites and anarchists. And uh, they were out there causing their troubles, and that led to a deep paranoia on the part of the officials we'll get to later. Okay, so that's looking down on a balcony inside one of the parts of the Bella Center. This is kind of the food area, and it was a happening. Uh, of course, there's a gotta be an earth, and then some fools have to be doing the obvious, you know, <laughs> things about, you know, with the earth. Uh, and as soon as Terry and I finished this, then 28 other people lined up for their turn, each saying, nobody in the background. Yeah, I, it, was, it was fun. And anytime you're at one of these, there are sort of a couple of different cultures, uh, the diplomats in the three-piece suits, uh, the business community in the two-piece suits with the slick literature, and the enviros, you know, in jeans winning political theater. So this is Climate Action Network giving its coveted Fossil of the Day Award and um, they were giving it to Canada, I believe, was the ultimate winner because Canada didn't want border adjustments because they're doing everything in their power 
to protect Texas North, which is what we finally call Alberta and oil sands. But in any case, they also gave one to Sweden for backing the notion of having a baseline against which country deforestation progress could be measured. And I'm sorry, guys, that's exactly the right thing for Sweden to do. So, you know, you're looking at the Enviro left, and they have that attitude. They're very entertaining, they're funny, they raise good issues, but they're not always right. Anyhow. These guys were a riot. They came in talking like they were from Mars and take me to your climate leader. And of course, the idea is there isn't any. And uh, that was true. Now, most of the demonstrations, which were constant inside, were peaceful, were entertaining, very photogenic. The media loved them. And they were really very good. It was only later on it got ugly. And you couldn't get in with our kind of badge uh, to, the main, to the main descriptions, although we have one exception here. He'll tell you his story soon. And uh, so there was uh, Connie um, Hedegaard, uh, the um, Minister of the Environment from Denmark, who was the, uh, since they were the host, who was the president, and had just been appointed to the new Minister of Climate for the EU. And she was trying to run this show. And all of that is piped out on TVs all over the place, so you can actually watch what's going on. And uh, then, of course, most of the business is done quietly somewhere. So there's Terry and, and me. And Chris is, I think Chris is off. Chris is um, Chris Ebai, who is the head of the technical support unit for IPCC Working Group 2, working with Chris Field and Mike Mastandrea, trying to organize the current IPCC second um, uh, working group, which is Impacts, Adaptation, and Vulnerability. Chris was there, and that's Andy Revkin, was in his last week of official uh, hire for the New York Times. Of course, not, nobody knew that, but uh, uh, he took a golden handshake because, well, I don't want to go into his frustration. But anyhow, what we did is we wanted to have all of our troops have a morning meeting at 8 o'clock to discuss what we've been doing and to have an in-depth hour with somebody of significance. So we had Andy, we had delegates, and I'll show you all that. Um, and it really was terrific. So we negotiated with Andy to do that at breakfast. And there he is. Uh, there's Bill. Who else do we see there? A bunch of things. Kevin. Um, and this went on for what? About an hour. And so he gave a 15-minute speech, and then it was wide open. And we had some uh, Taiwanese students, too, uh, because thanks to um, Ming Lu, when I was visiting in Taiwan, is he here? There he is. He's now visiting us on sabbatical for three months. He kindly took me around in Taiwan, and I met a number of students. And because of certain political issues with the UN, it was hard for Taiwan, but not for their students to get there. So they found us. They joined our group. We linked with other universities. So the, the students had an opportunity to be part of a, of a whole student network uh, to build cohorts. And uh, we did that. Uh, this was at one of them, uh, Sarah. Sarah Risk and a couple of others of, of our people. Uh, we even had some alumni. That's uh, Michael Haas, who was the, uh, the founder and first CEO of Orion Energy, and now runs with uh, staffers over here with friends of his uh, and colleagues, many of whom are Stanford graduates, uh, the, uh, what is it, the um, Alliance for Climate Education. And they briefed the students, you know, coming from that, that perspective. And also, the other thing was took some students to work with them. OK. Uh, IPCC was under attack constantly because of the gates that were mentioned. Gates as in water. Gates as in the guys who went to jail with the break-ins. 
what would have happened if in Watergate they had actually found some smarmy memo from the Democrats? Would it have been about the memo or about the break-in ordered from the White House? You know, so right now we've got the victims and the villains reversed uh, in a witch hunt, and IPCC was getting accused of having exaggerated anthropogenic global warming because there was an argument that four scientists out of 400 might have you know, tried to do things that some people wouldn't like. Even if it was 100% true, I'll show you later, had nothing to do with anthropogenic global warming. But that's another story. So they went out there and held a press conference. They were a little defensive. Chris Field was not defensive. All he did was tell the story. That, in fact, is uh, Terry Rood and Mike and my uh, uh, paper from PNAS, which shows the difference between the bloom dates of roses or plants coming, I mean, or birds coming back for a, disturb, for a model driven by just natural forces and one driven by humans. And you can see that you don't even need thermometers to be able to show that there's anthropogenic global warming. And so Chris gave a good scientific talk. I think Pachi, Pachori was a little bit defensive uh, and kept referring back to credentials of IPCC which is never a good way to win a political argument. And uh, uh, we'll come to that later if this time. Anyhow, they had two things. Whoops, sorry. So could not avoid this discussion in the gates. So there's a good old hockey stick. And what's this all about? All right, so let's go back to the third assessment report of the IPCC, where this was one of the figures. This is the handle of the hockey stick, kind of wavy, interannual stuff, very noisy. 50-year running mean less, there's the blade exceeding the 50-year running mean of the handle. This was work of Mann, Bradley, and Hughes. Its primary pioneering was that there's an overlap period in there where there are both temperature records in the neighborhood of tree ring widths, coral reef, oxygen isotope concentrations, pollen diagrams, and so forth. So when you're reconstructing this, the thermometer is only revented in here. It's only been globally widespread since about 100 years. Therefore, you have to reconstruct this in proxies that are not temperature, but proportional to temperature in some funny way. So therefore, you're coming up with what's called a transfer function. You extrapolate it back. Almost all the previous records were ship captain's logs, things not ever correlated and not done on a global basis. So Mann, Bradley, and Hughes, the guys with the subject of climate gate, deserve a lot of credit for trying to do this more scientifically. Of course, when they were getting blasted and attacked, and the reason for that is whenever you have uncertainty in how to translate a proxy into a thermometer, there are going to be alternative assumptions you could make that would be just as valid as the ones you did make. So as a result of that, there were people attacking them. They got defensive, you know, said some nasty things about their attackers in private emails, which then got leaked out along with some other things. And I had expected when I went there that the primary question I'd be asked is, so Steve, you've been around this for 40 years. What's the level of dangerous anthropogenic interference? That was your chapter in IPCC. And you know, is it one degree? Is it two degrees? Is it three? And of course, the answer is it's already dangerous in some systems. And you probably go to four degrees for other. And you've got an upwardly, upwardly sloped curve, where the more you add warming, the more number of systems threatened, and the deeper the threat. There's no on-off switch. You cannot. There's no threshold. What there is is a is a uh, is an accumulation of stuff. That's well known in the IPCC. I was asked that question a lot. Not nearly as much as I was asked. Well. Is anthropogenic global warming really on hold because of climate gate? So more than the other. 
So let's talk about this hockey stick debate. Just very briefly, we're going to do Copenhagen. But I had to say this, what, 200 times, at least, with media and other things. There is no hockey stick. There's men, Bradley and Hughes. There are 12 of them. And that's exactly what good scientists do. They replicate. They do not copy each other's codes as these auditors want. You won't give me your code. You're hiding. I would be against giving anybody my code because it's not written to be passed on. If you want to write a code so that it's written to be passed on, then triple our budgets so we can hire two programmers to document it. You can't pass on codes. What you do is you talk about methods. You pass on data and what your, um, your algorithms are. And then other people should replicate it with their own code, because that way you get independent replication. It's exactly what the community has done. So what do we conclude when you look at these 12 studies of which here's the one being attacked? Hey, guys, hockey stick's still there. Blade's still above everybody. Handle wavy as hell. So what I keep saying is anthropogenic global warming was never a function of the waviness of the hockey stick. We'll talk about that, because this was a major issue at there. So their AGW, anthropogenic whoop, global warming, oops, sorry. There we go. That's El Saban, chief uh, delegate, delegate from Saudi Arabia. Uh, and there are many, many stories. If uh, you read in Science as a Contact Sport, shameless self-promotion number one, uh, I have long stories on his behavior in IPCC, especially 1995, when IPCC went from a nice debating club to an ugly political scene. And uh, he stated, not on the floor, he was smart. He's a smart guy. He did this in the G77, the developing countries, where he thought he might have sympathy. Because of, because of climate gate, there's no anthropogenic global warming. We should cancel COP15. You know how many developing countries took him up on it? Zero. Major change. The monolith of developing countries is over, just as the monolith of industrial companies is over. There's a spectrum of views among everybody. And without that, there's no chance to get to the middle where you have a chance for agreement. And that's what we're going to have to work on. But let me move on. So how did IPCC do it? Well, I do not have time to explain this slide. But what I'll tell you is we did three things. Drove climate models with natural forces, volcanic eruptions, changes in the sun. Drove them with natural plus human greenhouse gases and aerosols. The black line is the is the warming that's been observed. And in every one of the six continents in global, global average, global land, global ocean, they all separate somewhere around 1970s. So the probability of chance on that is pretty low if you assume the continents are independent. But they're not independent from the global average. So that's what we call a fingerprint. There's four other fingerprints. Stratosphere cools, lower atmosphere warms. That's a fingerprint of global warming, of human interference. It's not a fingerprint of the sun did it. That would warm everything. That worked. Fingerprint of humans doing it, middle of continents warming more than middle of oceans, that worked. Fingerprint of that, low latitudes warm up less than high latitudes, that worked. Night warms up more than day. So we got four fingerprints, each one independent. Two to the power of four, that's less than one chance in 10 of error, plus this. Probably we're at somewhere in the 98, 99% level. And what did IPCC say? They said very likely that, that anthropogenic global warming since 1970 is largely due to human activities very likely is linked on IPCC to a probability scale, which Richard Moss and I are, in a way, personally responsible for, because we forced it down the throats of our frequentist colleagues to think like Bayesians, right, to, 
to think in subjective probabilities, which we now have all agreed to do. And that's 9 out of 10. Why did they pick 9 out of 10 when it could have been higher? Because there's always the possibility there's some unknown forcing nobody has measured, nobody has thought of. We have no idea what it is. It's exceedingly unlikely, but we're conservative. So we lowered the level. So when these guys say no anthropogenic global warming, go read it. Listen to the fatwas from those famous professors of climatology, you know, professors Will and Limbaugh and Beck and all these guys. <laughs> oh, anthropogenic global warming's canceled. The hockey stick is disproved. It's the greatest bunch of crap you could ever hear. If they are that ignorant, they should shut up. If they're not ignorant, they're liars, and we should call them what they are. And that's what they are, in my personal opinion. In any case, the point is anthropogenic global warming was never based upon the hockey stick. It was based upon fingerprints. And I can't tell you how many times we had to say that there. And we're still saying it, waiting for the mainstream media to find its bearings. OK, climate gate, give me a break. It's climate denier gate. And, uh, I said that. This is all of what science of what I call meteorology. Now, let me go back to meteorology and end. OK, so we had a battle. This is thanks to the, uh, to the Woods Center um, uh, for Ocean Solutions and Meg and Arlo Hempel Arlo around. And they, they did a press conference where I released the new book. And uh, immediately, I don't think I had uh, one second. I'm setting up these press conferences every half hour. You have two minutes to load your slides. You have 15 minutes and then 15 minutes for Q&A. And this guy, Fleem McLear, comes. He's, he's what I would call the denier paparazzi. And uh, sticks a microphone and a camera in my face, which is illegal, by the way. The rules are you're supposed to ask questions by being recognized. Sarah here? Yep. All right, she took this picture. She saw what was going on. I gave her the camera. I wanted to record it. And uh, the UN had to come and throw him off the podium. And he said, well, Steve, how'd you get here? I said, well, Fleem, you want me to say I flew and I'm a big carbon villain, just like you. The issue is not about the fact that when we do anything in our economy, you know, we don't make, we don't make some footprint. It's a matter of the degree of the footprint and the rules to lower it and how we do it. That's what it's about. Of course, none of that got in there. So then he went over in the corner of the audience. And at the end, he asked a question. Four minutes later, they tried to sit him down because there's a two-minute rule, which he completely ignored. We go through this large argument. And then in the end, you know, when they're trying to remove him, I hesitate. Then finally, I said, no, let him finish this question. It took up eight of the 15 minutes before they finally shut him up. He was so aggressive from charging the podium that they had to bring a guard in to keep him away from me later. And then what appeared in the right-wing blogs? At gunpoint, because the guard had a gun, <laughs> reporters stopped from asking climate gate questions. There's only one word for it, total lie. So what we did is we put on, uh, well, what, what Arlo did is he put on, and you can look it up on the, on the, on the uh, Center for Ocean Solutions website, the actual eight minutes that, thank God, Arlo recorded, which showed what really happened. So a lot of the kids out there said, oh my God. I mean, when you were at Science of Contact Sport, we just thought these were weird stories. That's even worse than we believed. You know, it's just amazing. And then we found out that he did it before that he went to an Al Gore thing. And after four minutes, they told him to shut up. He wouldn't, so they took off the, they shut off his microphone. He filmed it and put it on as if he was being denied. His, so this is a serial liar. And this is exactly what we got to deal with out there. And these guys are out there, and millions are believing him. Well, why do you think we're having trouble at cops? Not all the reporters are that bad. There's <laughs> one. OK, so there was Sarah. And this was one of the filmmakers we were with. 
and he was filming things and recording all this. So it was like a nonstop uh, media event as well as lots of side programs. Um, any of you ever see the photographs up in, up in space or on ladders taken by Jan Arthus Patron? He's a wonderful guy. He runs a group called Climate, I can't remember it, Protection. And they had a meeting where they showed a film and the film then was introduced by that guy and all of our students got to talk to him. You know, it was really, it was really who came. There's Bill Andrag asking him questions. So it was, it was really nice. Then we went and that's uh, Matari Mangai, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, and there's Salim Hook, who's an ethicist and a very, very fine social scientist who's also deeply involved in IPCC. And there's Salim talking with Stanford. So he was willing to do it. And this was all part of the experience. And, and, and as I said, we had people from other institutions there, some from Michigan. Um, then my former student, Jean Pascal, who's the second in charge of the Belgian delegate and delegation, and, and an IP, he's the IPCC vice chair. If Pachi falls, which he won't, but if he does, he'll be the next uh, chair. And uh, again, the, the group. So they were terrific. We went to hear John Holdren. The US booth was quite good. It had, for a change, the US was spreading information and not disinformation. That was a pleasure. Uh, this was a meeting that we had with Inuits, another side event. Uh, there's Chris, Chris Field, and, and Chris Ebai, and then, uh, uh, and then oh, come on, I hate it when I forget. Um, uh, Ian Burton from Toronto who's one of the world's leading experts in, in natural hazards and in adaptation, and Terry. And of course, we were roughing it, you know, going out to Tivoli to go to dinner, uh, eating all this terrible food. And then final event was, there were a lot of, Chinese had a lot of presence there that was NGO, much more than I would have expected. And this is a very famous Chinese, I didn't know that, movie star named Ling Ling Bi. Anybody know uh, Li, rather, L-I? And apparently, she's a major figure. And so naturally, I had to get a book endorsement. Uh, anyhow, um, <laughs> have any of you ever seen Gary Brash's photography? Gary's a great photographer, does a lot of stuff. That's Gary, yeah. He made me give him this picture. I saw him outside. Gary is, is 180 you know, minutes a minute, a minute, an hour in motion. So I, uh, I gave him that, and I said, you owe me a book for that, Gary. But he was out there doing the stuff, and this is the end. Unfortunately, they were everywhere in the last week. And they were, and these helicopters were police helicopters. That was a nighttime blunting of a protester. The trots and the, you know, the, and the anarchists were out there you know, breaking cars and panicked the UN guys. So they basically banned civil society. We got down to one pass. We did a lottery. The winner is about to talk, but there was a charge on the winner. You had to blog back to us, which he did in spades. So there it is, Christiana. That's the district. Stormed in the night. And how is it that some governor of some one state in the world is recognized in, in Norwegian as Arnold? Well, anyhow. So it's a pretty city. It's still pretty. Uh, we got a long way to go. And Kareem, come up and uh, tell us your story, and afterward, we can do Q&A for a while, and maybe one or two others who were there might have two minutes to say about their experience, too. Um, well, thank you all for coming, and thank you for the opportunity. Um, let me start by saying that COP15 was definitely an exceptional experience for me. And what I will try to do today is to take all of us two months back to Denmark, to Copenhagen, and once again, act as an observer, which was my role in 
COP15. I had an exceptional opportunity, thanks to Steve and Teddy and the rest of the Stanford team, to be in the last two days of the negotiations representing Stanford University, which a lot of people didn't have. So what I would like to do today is to spread the word and basically share with you all the knowledge, the memories, and the stories that I have about these two days and try my best to make you live these two days in 15 or so minutes. So <laughs> while we're trying to get the um, presentation got it, got it, got it. going, good. So I was going to, I had a different cover plan. Uh, this is working. Uh, thank you, Paul. So um, inside the walls of COP15. So basically, my timeline is very simple. I'm going to go through the last five days, or four days plus one extra day, which was not originally on the agenda, from the uh, conference. And the bar that you, or the, the arrow that you see here, I like to call it the negotiations thermometer, where you would see the negotiations starting very easy going and then heating up as you hit the last two days. So Tuesday, very briefly, I will go very briefly through the first three days, starting from Tuesday, covering all the way till Saturday, because all the excitement happened in the last, in the last two days. So Tuesday, just very briefly, um, I'm going to be mentioning, I'm going to be talking about two points. Yes, that's during the second week of the conference. So <coughs> Tuesday, the second week until Saturday. Um, well, the first thing to talk about is the long, maybe long, the longest waiting line that we had to stand in uh, as we were getting into Bella Center. And this is one of the logistic difficulties that Steve was talking about. We had such kind of lines on Tuesday, Wednesday, and even on Thursday when, even though they were restricting the access um, more and more. And it wasn't really that warm outside, I have to say. So because it wasn't that warm, the Danish army, based on an individual, if you want, initiative, started distributing coffee, and sooner or later, it became kind of a national hospitality symbol. So, um, which was really interesting. Um, moving back, as soon as you hit Bella Center, it's a completely different life. It's a completely different environment. And you would start feel the flow. So um, this is a picture inside Bella Center. And of course, as you can see, a lot of media, a lot of um, delegates, and you know, a lot of interviews happening. This is another picture for the, from inside the Bella Center. This is the ball, the earth. And basically, this is the Danish uh, booth. So inside Bella Center, in addition to the negotiations, there were three side events or three main booths for side events, running side events simultaneously at the same time. One of the biggest was the Danish, in addition to the US booth and the EU booth. And they were running side events simultaneously throughout the whole day. And of course, communication was very important. They had a very well-equipped uh, communication booth with laptops and Skype and internet connection and everything. And this is one of the side events outside Bella Center called Bright Green. Bright Green was basically an exhibition where a lot of non-governmental organizations, governmental agencies, and sometimes also companies are exhibiting their new technologies, their new uh, green technologies that are in one way or another related to climate change. And for me, Bright Green was really very interesting because there was, during the event itself, there was a talk by the Secretary of, uh, the Secretary of Energy, Mr. Stephen Chu. So let's see, hopefully, that the video is going to work what he said. So the video is working, but the audio is not. Uh, 
Okay. Um, let's. Try. Yeah, we can. We can try. Yeah. This is an adaptation center. Uh, okay, that should work. Capture and sequester for long periods of time. Carbon. We're serious about this. The United States Supreme it's been matched by an additional $7 billion of private sector money in the U.S. So this is a substantial down payment uh, looking for a solution. We're also uh, funding $8 billion worth of loan guarantees. Our goal is very aggressive. We would like to drive down the cost of this technology so that within 8 or 10 years, you can allow commercial deployment. Whether this happens or not, I, I don't know, but this is our goal. Beyond that, we are also investing in more research that goes well beyond the technologies we're beginning to pilot today. And again, to drive down the cost so that uh, not only the United States and Europe uh, can do this, but countries like China and India will also begin to use carbon capture sequestration. Okay, well, and just for the just for the record, he didn't only talk about CCS, but he talked about a lot of um, a lot of other technologies. He talked about energy efficiency, about um, energy efficiency inside residential buildings, wind, solar. But for me, as a carbon capture and sequestration person, the only time that I was excited to take my cam and start recording was when this section started. So um, moving on, on Wednesday there was a protest inside Bella Center, and that was because. The protest was organized by some NGOs, not all NGOs, and they were basically, um, you know, um, complaining against the United Nations um, decision to cut down the number of the NGOs uh, participants inside Bella Center. And this protest went all the way uh, outside. That was subsequently followed by closing the Bella Center in the afternoon, and that's when a lot of the delegations that were not able to um, to come inside Bella Center, that's what happened exactly with the Stanford delegation, and that's when, at that night, after talking to Steve and the rest of the team, I, I got the, I would say, I got the honor and the responsibility to be representing Stanford because I happened to be inside Bella Center. And it was interesting because also on Wednesday, the heads of state started arriving, and you would see that the expectations are going up, but at the same time, the challenges are going up. So this is a picture of the, uh, of the protest inside Bella Center. And this was the first address by the Danish Prime Minister to the Prime Ministers and the heads of the states in the opening, in the opening session. Well, that was his address at the very beginning. We're going to listen to him again at the very end of the conference. On Thursday, what happened? On Thursday, it was the first, the first day of the last two days, the last two big days. So there was, we're gonna, I'm going to show you the plenary sessions, and then we're going to go through the plenary sessions as they happen. The first high-level plenary session, the first working group, the second high-level, 
the second working group, and some side conversations. So just for you to know, there were two plenary sessions. The one was devoted for the working groups, which is basically the place where all the documents are being drafted. So the the, any agreement that would come up, it would come up out of these working groups who are country delegates sitting there drafting the different paragraphs. And the other plenary, um, basically, um, place was, um, oh, sorry. So this is, this is, we're still talking about the working groups. This is where the delegates sit. And it's a gigantic hall. And this is where the NGOs sit, way in the back. So um, this is the other uh, plenary, plenary hall, obviously more prestigious, because this is the high level. Uh, this is where the high level plenary sessions basically happen, where the heads of states give their, uh, give their addresses. So in the first high level plenary session, no laptops or cameras or cell phones were allowed. You're only allowed with a pen and a piece of paper. So apologies, I did not take any pictures. Uh, and the first working group, and I, I should mention here that um, I, I'm, I'm not going to have time, obviously, to go through all, through what each state basically talked, although different states had a lot of interesting points. So if you're interested about particular state, you're more than welcome to ask me uh, about that afterwards, and I'll be happy, uh, be happy to answer. So the first working group plenary session, there was an obvious rise for G77 in China. For you who don't know, G77 is Group 77, which is basically the biggest representative of developing countries inside the United Nations. And you had two obviously very active parties in the negotiations. G77 on behalf of the developing countries and the least developed countries and the South, if you want, and the developed countries led by the United States and the EU and other rich countries. So there was a rise of G77 in China. These guys were definitely contributing very actively in the negotiations. And there was also a clear opposition by G77 and China to Denmark's working documents. So Denmark, as a hosting country, they keep putting proposals on the table to keep the negotiations going. And you would see G77 and China being very cautious in the way that they are approaching these documents. The second high-level plenary session, um, the checking procedures were a little bit less stringent, so we were able to get some pictures inside. So um, this is Angela Merkel um, from Germany, and President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad from Iran, and Hugo Chavez from Venezuela, and President Nicolas Sarkozy from France. And as you can see, you see the whole political spectrum in these rooms. Side conversations as these negotiations were happening, I got the chance to talk to, uh, I got the chance to run two side conversations. One with the French uh, delegation, where I basically asked them about the proposal that President Sarkozy uh, raised in his speech. And he proposed a, um, I think I'm going to be coming into that. Yeah, he raised a side representative high level meeting. So what he wanted basically is most of the presidents of the really representative countries like say US, China, some, some presidents from the developed countries, other presidents from the developing countries, sit all together in one meeting at night and really see what's going on. We, th th there is very slow progress that is happening. We need to accelerate the progress. So uh, that was a French um, invitation. They said that it was still going. And we're talking on Thursday. It was supposed to happen at Thursday night. They said it's still happening. They're planning on it. And so the second working group plenary session, that started around 10 PM. And there was no promising progress on key topics. Whenever it comes to trade, whenever it comes to agriculture, whenever it comes to food security, you're always having a block. The negotiation teams are not achieving any progress. And it was interrupted in, in, 
there was a recess, and after the recess, G77 and China called for a half an hour meeting that went for two hours, and it was already 2 a.m., and then we continued the meeting, and the meeting adjourned at 4.30 a.m. A lot of the delegates at that day, including myself, did not go back home. We just slept in Bella Center. So, of course, people are getting tired. <laughs> and as it came to 2 a.m., more people were getting tired. <laughs> so that's how the meetings went there. How, what was the status of the delegations? I'm going to let you listen to one of the delegates. So basically what he's saying is that countries have different opinions. And whenever a country doesn't like the phrasing, they go bracket the sentence and they put their own phrasing. And the reason that they didn't continue in that matter is simply because they ran out of papers. They ran out of space. So we're not talking about one opinion. We're not talking about two opinions. We're talking about multiple, multiple opinions. You go do bracket and then you put your own <coughs> phrasement. So since we're running out of time, I, wanna, I still want to go through those very briefly. On Friday, that was the morning high-level plenary session. There was side, and that's when President Obama spoke and the Chinese Prime Minister spoke. Well, we're going to see what happened, but then it was followed by side negotiations and then the midnight compromise. So in the morning session, really hope started fading after China and the US talked because there was an obvious um, monitoring, reporting, and verification dilemma. The US was asking for a very strong and firm monitoring, verification, and, um, and reporting procedure. The US said, uh, excuse me, the China said that this might be a threat to its, uh, to its sovereignty. So nobody was really willing to give, you know, to be a little bit flexible and give compromises. And the tone was more or less the following. This is what we have. We have offered what we have offered. You either take it or leave it. So, well, that's not really good because we're, ending, we're supposed to be ending the conference on this day. So this is the Chinese Prime Minister. This is President Obama. And then what happened? We went into side negotiations. We want to save the conference. So US and China had bilateral meetings. And then we had the President's Roundtable. That included representatives from all of these countries. Basically, we are talking about a meeting where presidents from a lot of countries sat together for hours, drafting with their bare hands a document that came to be known as the Copenhagen Accord. So, they, of course, took into consideration the work of their working groups, but it's not with the same formality that the working groups came up with. And, of course, we see the side negotiations happening. Um, this, here we see the, uh, the coordinator of G77 and the Venezuelan uh, 
leading negotiator. And the midnight compromise, after spending all of these hours during the day with side negotiations and in that meeting, President Obama came around 11 p.m. announcing that there has been an agreement, more or less a compromise. And that document that was born was referred to as the Copenhagen Accord. Okay, well we need to pass that still officially through the United Nations process. And that was last endless meeting. The meeting started at 10 p.m. What happened very briefly is that the Danish Prime Minister came inside the room. He said he distributed the document of all, over, for all the delegates and he said, you have one hour to discuss it among yourselves and then we're gonna put it onto vote. Well, some countries were not so happy about that. And we can see that here. So basically what happened, what you heard, was the Venezuelan delegation hitting on their table, asking for a point of order. In the United Nations, you have the right to ask for a point of order. But it looks like they asked for a point of order while the Danish Prime Minister was distributing the, government, uh, distributing the, the document. And he kind of oversaw them, or maybe they were ignored, so they were hammering on the tables to get their point of order because they wanted to talk. What happened is that, going back to my previous slide, is that the South American countries, starting with Venezuela, Cuba, and some other countries, were not happy. They refuted the process by which the document was born originally. They did not agree on how the document was distributed. They said it's against the United Nations procedure. And without reading the document, they said, we're refusing the document. We're not going to accept putting this document onto vote. Because what happens is that you need the countries to decide first by consensus that this is an eligible document to go to vote, and then after that the countries vote for it. They said, we're not going to accept that. So, okay, and we're talking now, it's, it's midnight. It's midnight of Friday, the last day of the conference. By that time, some of the delegates were supposed to be going back home. So, the Venezuelan delegation, not very happy. And then, of course, you know, um, Discussions went back and forth, and the UK had a, had a significant role to play, in addition to the United States, in, in pushing the negotiations forward. And Mr. Ed Miliband, the UK Minister of Environment, when he just needed his microphone, it didn't work. So he went to his neighbors and allies in the United States booth, and he spoke from there. So um, as we see, they asked for a recess. After 20 or more countries asked for the floor, people started talking back and forth. Um, we were still observing. And we saw that Ban Ki-moon, the United Nations Secretary General, was not happy at all, and he has all the right not to be. What you, are, what you saw in this video was the Maldives president, obviously one of the most vulnerable states for climate change. He was 
insistingly talking to the Bolivian delegate and asking her to accept the document. It looked that Copenhagen Accord, even though it wasn't a great document, it was still very necessary for some countries. Negotiations going on and on. We started at 10 p.m., remember? Now it's almost 8 a.m. in the morning. So that was a continuous meeting. Nobody slept at that night. Continuing more, and that's when we believe, that's a very short video, which I'm not going to go through, but basically what it shows is that uh, Mr. Ed Miliband, the UK minister, goes on the stage, talk to Mr. Ban Ki-moon for a couple of minutes, and then he goes down. Most probably he was telling him, okay, fine, we have an agreement. After that, Ban Ki-moon called, or the, uh, whoever was uh, presiding over the session called back for the session. In 30 minutes or so, after 10 hours of negotiations, or even more throughout the night, in 30 seconds or even less, what happened is that the president of the session said one sentence, followed by the states take note of Copenhagen Accord, end of discussion, and he immediately shifted to the other topic. Some countries didn't even understand what was going on. And they asked him to repeat, like, please repeat, like, did we reach an agreement? Like, what happened? We have been talking for 10 hours here. What happened? He repeated it, and he repeated exactly the same phrasement. The countries take note of Copenhagen Accord. Take note is completely different than agree. Take note, it means that you recognize that Copenhagen Accord is a document that is present there. It doesn't mean that you agree on that document. So that was the compromise that was reached. If you want to have this document and you want to be within the mechanism, you would go and sign on it. But that doesn't mean that we have reached an international agreement because guess what? Some countries don't want to sign on this document. So after two weeks of negotiations and endless meetings like those, that was Copenhagen Accord, and that was the conclusion of the conference. One of our students was there, was involved in side group. You want to give us a, a one minute, two minute, uh, what it was like from the student perspective, deeply engaged with an NGO? Yes, believe it or not, uh, I'm actually a student. A couple, a couple years older than uh, And uh, just like uh, many, many people who are graduating in June, I was there primarily to look for a job and try to get to do a bit of networking. My objective is about four years ago, the bank is now trying to work for an NGO. Steve's kind enough to hook me up with um, Worldwatch, which is a uh, small NGO that uh, basically does research on the environment. They were putting on an event, uh, a talk about asking interest with a little bit of expertise on it, so I hooked it with them. It was actually a tremendous networking opportunity because in addition to the Woodstock uh, kind of events that Steve was talking about, it's also effectively a trade show for anybody with any interest whatsoever in climate change. So not only did I meet a lot of people from Worldwatch, but they introduced me to uh, a man called Hope twice. Uh, and with the Sierra Club, spoke to a pretty pretty good right. person in EDF, uh, some folks in NRTC. So hopefully make a little bit of progress on my objective, which was to find a job. <laughs> okay, now anybody uh, less shy want to ask? <laughs> so shall we? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Please, shout it out. <laughs> how, how did the, this compare with your expectations? 
Hmm, well, who cares what my personal opinion is? Uh, expectations when? Expectations, uh, you know, after November of 2008 or expectations uh, in uh, November of 2009? Uh, obviously way below the, the former and in the end, actually, about the same, if not slightly better. I had expected even less by the time we went there, not just because the class of people willing to do things couldn't reach an agreement because they deliberately stuck as they were instructed up to a point to their nation's lines. Uh, I thought that there was good progress that didn't get in the documents. We had a lot of progress on, uh, on forest protection, primary forest protection. Hillary put $100 billion on the table. That's starting to get to the magnitude of money. It's 10 years. That's too long. But other countries talking about adaptation and schemes to leapfrog you know, developing countries over the Industrial Revolution, that was progress. Uh, there was progress on intellectual property. Uh, and uh, in fact, John Kelly, are you here somewhere? Yeah, he talked to us about that too, uh, to the students. And all of that is sitting there and will be picked up and they'll build on it in the next meeting. There's also the noted accord, which basically said that heads of state trying to be embarrassed in history are willing to go a little further than they allowed their functionary delegates to go. So where we're stuck now for the next one is how many countries, I was just at the World Economic Forum, and a lot of countries there were arguing we've got to abandon the UN Framework Convention process. You cannot allow a few countries, some of whom they called client states of China, you know, never mind whether you believe that or not, but that's a perception on the street, uh, blocking the process because UN consens consensus means everybody. So let's have side deals of the 12 to 20 biggest polluters. It's 80% of the emissions, it's 70% of the world population. And undoubtedly, they do a better job of reaching an agreement for planetary protection than trying it through this process. Here's the problem. There's still 30% of humanity responsible for a few percent of world emissions called the poorest of the poor. IPCC and others have shown that they are the most vulnerable to change because they have the lowest adaptive capacity with the least developed economies. They're the ones who are using bad energy systems, very inefficient, and need to do leapfrogging, not just China, India, Indonesia, Brazil, Mexico, and South Africa, but they have no horse to ride other than the UN framework process. So what I've been personally trying to do is advocate that if we're gonna do this split into the coalition of the willing emitters, we also are gonna have to still retain somebody who's gonna take a look at the, uh, the primary victims of the fact that most of the rich use the atmosphere as a sewer to get richer and are not helping the others. So I don't think the process is dead. Uh, I think it's gonna have to define itself. If we're waiting for targets to emerge from the UN Framework Convention under the, uh, it's not gonna happen. Not under, um, under any rules of 100% consensus. So there's probably gonna end up being a split model and how well coordinated, I don't know. So, the question I was going to say, should we do this again in Mexico next year with the Stanford students? I think, from my own perspective, that's going to depend upon how the preliminary stuff goes this summer. And to some extent, I hate to say this, it'll depend upon what the U.S. midterm election looks like. Because if Obama is denied the option of any rules, I mean of any, of any American cuts, 
except through the EPA, which undoubtedly will be in court, it'll be hard for the U.S. to do anything. If the U.S. doesn't do anything, other countries will then often use that as an excuse to do nothing, and we'll be stuck again. So it's too soon to know. There was some good groundwork done that we can build on, so we can be optimistic about that. Somebody said, so is the glass half full or half empty? I said, I don't know, it's 15% full. <laughs> That's the optimism. So there is good stuff we can build on, but it's got a long way to go. What's it gonna take? Somebody I got asked by media the other day, I don't know, the mega hurricane that takes out Miami or Shanghai? Don't worry, it's coming. And uh, those things have an amazing capacity to change political will, but I don't you know, want the, you know, the fate of the, uh, of the planetary climate to hang on random events slightly souped up by warmer oceans. It would be nice if we could be more rational, but at the moment, I don't know. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.